You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6-12 But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, if you haven't met me before, my name is Coy. I'm the associate pastor here. It's so good to see you all uh, this afternoon. Yeah, Benjamin Franklin, one of the 18th uh, century founding fathers of the United States of America, once said this, Money never made a man happy, yet nor will it. The more a man has, the more he wants. Instead of filling a vacuum, it makes one. Fast forward to today, and not only uh, America, but countries like ours here in Australia have plenty of articles uh, like this one here from uh, Nine News that says things like this. Money has never been more important to the average Australian household. The cost of living, living is soaring, petrol prices are at record highs, and interest rates are climbing. And you can see that all around us, can't we? Where it just feels like not just petrol prices and interest rates, but it just feels like everything's gone up. Like I love Easter Easter bunnies, chocolate Cadbury Easter bunnies and like the 250 grand ones. Every year I'd always check the sale price, which is $4. That's the cheapest you can get. This year, $6 was the cheapest. It's shocking. I actually have somebody here who's like a like a bunny watchdog for me who messages me throughout Easter the whole four weeks. Like, Koi, by the way, this is the cheapest price you can get for Easter bunnies, you know? Bless her soul. They've, you know, saved me a lot of dollars and I've gained a lot of kilos through it. So thank you. Thank you for that person. But in all serious, seriousness, for most of us, if not all of us, this quote from Nine News feels very real, doesn't it? Even if what Benjamin Franklin said was inspiring, the reality is for most of us is that we're really feeling that financial pinch nowadays. Even though the reality is as middle class, mostly middle class Australians living in the West, of Melbourne would be considered wealthy next to most of the world. We as Victorians are living in an economy that takes more, that expects more, but also allures more. That living in a Western society, we can say confidently that it is a society that is wealth obsessed. So when we are struggling financially, we feel the weight of that even more. Or when we have a lot, we still feel like it's not enough. So we desire to have more. It's an ongoing tension as mostly middle-class Australians. 
And I think the Apostle Paul in the letter of 1 Timothy speaks into this quite directly, giving Christians some great food for thought to help navigate, help us navigate through this season. So again, let's read it together. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into the temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. See, to understand the context of this passage, we must first see that the Apostle Paul was directing this warning to the false teachers of the time who were teaching all sorts of false doctrines and teachings counter to the words of Jesus. But in this section in particular, in verses 6 to 10, Paul speaks specifically about one of the primary concerns of these false teachers, that of wealth and that of money. It seems that these men were using their godliness for financial gain. They were men devoting their lives to making money, cunning and greedy. These were a group who greatly desired money. So Paul would go on and deal with this concern directly, talking about its dangers and and traps while laying down principles that are not only targeting the teachers, but universally significant for all Christians. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And I love what Paul does here in verse 6 as he uses the false teachers' terms and flips it on their head. To the false teachers, they had held on to godliness as a way to become rich. And so Paul agrees in a way, saying that in godliness there is great gain, but it's not the gain, the wealth of money that the false teachers had in mind. But as uh, Pastor John Calvin puts it, godliness in itself is a sufficient gain for us because through it we not only inherit the world but also enjoy Christ and all the riches he brings. It's godliness with contentment that is great gain. The word contentment here in its original Greek is artikeia, which expressed quite a a favourite virtue of Greek philosophers of the time. They loved it because the word would often translate to self-sufficiency, essentially a relying on one's own resources, own inner resources. But Paul actually flips this around, suggesting that that genuine artikeia is Christ-sufficiency, not self-sufficiency. He makes the point in Philippians, he makes this same point, Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 to 13, that not that I am speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to, be, how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is a Christ-sufficient contentment. See, in Philippians, Paul is saying he can be content in any circumstance, poverty or wealth, because of Christ's strength. So as Paul uses the same word here in the book of Timothy, what he's saying here is that godliness with this artikeia, this Christ-sufficient empowering which lets us live above both want and more, is great gain. Paul has flipped it to those whose love of money was so great. There is a profit and gain for the godly, but it comes from a Christ-centred contentment. This godliness is not about what the false teachers saw, not about obtaining better and more possessions, 
but the gain for the godly comes from what author Philip Towner says as an active life of faith, a living out of covenant faithfulness in relation to God that finds sufficiency and contentment in Christ alone, whatever one's outward circumstances might be. That is true gain. Question is, have we learnt of this contentment? And I think for most of us, this is quite a challenging question to answer. Even as a believer of Christ, this Christ-sufficient contentment can on most days be hard to remain in, and I think there's a big reason for that. You know, my wife, Lena, once worked for Apple, um, so it's no surprise that our household has many, many Apple products. Um, it's quite a luxury, I know. But I remember a few years back, Lena had, uh, had a new Apple Watch, while well, I had the older one, which was gifted, gifted to me. <laughs> But to me, they looked exactly the same. They looked exactly the same. There was no real differences. But I did ask her, what's the difference between her watch and mine? And she told me that hers had this thing called fall detection, which meant that if she had a major stack, the watch would detect that and sound an alarm and attempt to call the emergency services for her. At the time, I was like, oh, yeah, I don't need this. Like, that's not worth the upgrade, however much money that was extra. But then I started mulling on it. And my mind, mind started to think about it a lot more. I started getting nervous. So I started thinking, what if my hip suddenly just gives way? Uh, so I started thinking, what if I'm just at home and like I slip on a banana? You know? Or what if I'm like just napping and I fell off my bed and then I bumped the bedside next to me and then the bedside lamp fell on my head and I couldn't call anyone? So I started thinking, man, my watch is rubbish. I want a new watch. It was so easy to feel discontent. The temptation for us is huge. The world and how it's run is every day bombarding us with this message that we need more. You need to have this type of job. You need to have this type of car. You need to have this type of house, this body, particular skin. And what these things promise us is contentment when we have them. But then the next version comes out. A newer model releases or the more apt person does it better. These promises of contentment end up being anything but that. Our lives are filled with discontentment. It becomes a constant pursuit of something more or a constant feeling of dejection when unobtainable. I think back to the beginning of creation in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve seriously had everything yet were tempted by Satan to obtain more the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They just had to have it, giving in and disobeying their creator God. In effect, beginning that long-term toxic relationship that humanity has with discontentment. So in a world that breeds discontent, how do we develop this Christ-sufficient contentment? We have to see that as people, there is a huge God-shaped hole inside us that only God can satisfy. And if we don't fill this with God, we'll try to fill it with all sorts of other stuff, none that will ever be sufficient. Have you noticed that in movies that people, noticed in movies where people are chasing some sort of treasure, it always comes with a sequel. Like you think of National Treasure, there's National Treasure 2. Indiana Jones, there's four of them. Well, there's a fifth one coming out, which I'm very excited for. There's Pirates of the Caribbean. There's five of those. There's a sixth one coming out as well. Not so excited about that one. 
they find the treasure that they've been searching for. They have a laugh. Ha ha, we found the treasure. And then they go and look for more in the next movie. It's never enough. The search always continues. They're never content. And so it is the same with whatever we hold from this world as our treasure. But Paul's reminder to the believer, the godly, in our passage in 1 Timothy, is that true true gain, true profit, is for the one whose treasure is Christ. Christ is enough. Christ is sufficient. Jesus says in John chapter 10 that he came that we may have life and have it abundantly, that he's the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. See, the word sufficient is defined as enough to meet the needs of a situation or a proposed end. Ever since our sin had broken that bond with our creator God in the garden, our deepest human need has been salvation from sin and death. Jesus answered it through his death and through his resurrection, laying down his life for his sheep. He fulfilled our deepest need, that God-shaped chasm inside us, fulfilled only by him. He saves, he perfects, he equips, he completes, he provides. We see that in the word of God. Christ is our greatest treasure. We don't need the sequel. We don't need that next treasure map. The search doesn't continue. We have our true treasure in Jesus. He alone is sufficient. And so we can be content in that. In fact, we can rejoice in that. See, there's something joyful, something reassuring that we can be content in Christ. There's like a, a peacefulness to it. You know, I think of my mum, who's I've, you know, I've seen on both ends of the spectrum in regards to finance, um, from struggling in Australia as an immigrant, uh, coming over from Vietnam, trying to make ends meet, working two, three jobs just to feed me, my uncle and my auntie when I was very young, to then eventually owning a popular restaurant in the busy areas of the CBD of Adelaide, to giving that up, to now being a pastor's wife, no longer working but focused on ministry and missions. In it all, I saw all throughout a faithful woman who is joyful and at peace no matter her situation, no matter the circumstance. Even though my mum's financial situation has changed so drastically over her life, what was unwavering was her love for Christ, a deep sense of Christ's sufficient contentment. She had found that she had found her treasure in Jesus, and that was enough. See, while she had gained a lot and lost a lot, and I got to I got to see that, she would see everything as a gift from God, which leads us to the next section uh, of words from Paul in verse seven, where Paul says, "For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world." So, what's the biggest thing you remember saving up for? I remember when I was younger, I saved up for uh, my first computer, uh, a compact presario. That sounds like another language to a lot of people here, but to some of the oldies in here, you know what a compact presario is. It was a great old computer. It was great. It was very slow, uh, but it was a long time ago. And I remember, you know, got internet for the first time. So I can't wait to download this image of a soccer player. And I'll be just sitting there waiting for 10 minutes, like just line by line as it kind of just downloads. Like, yes, I can't wait. Yeah. Oh, yes, his boots are finally complete. You know, it was a good time. It was a great time. CD, you know, I played games where I had no idea what I was even playing because you could only see a few pixels each time. But I love this computer. I saved up for it because I felt like it was mine. I put all my money to save up for this. 
I was stoked. And this is quite a normal part of our culture, isn't it? That feeling of joy and, and sometimes relief that we finally saved up and owned that thing. Actually, it's often praised, and so it should be. It's a huge life achievement when you finally save up and own your first house. It's encouraging when the the fruits of your many years or even decades of labour are seen when you finally own that business of yours. These are momentous achievements, ticking off the boxes of the Australian dream, if you will. That feeling of ownership is, is so good. And I think this is so natural to us because as people, ownership is, is something we hold on to dearly from, think about it, when we were kids, from grabbing that toy off our siblings because we're saying, it's mine, when we were babies, to saving up every penny in your piggy bank to get that dream car of yours. To own something can often bring us a sense of joy, achievement and power that we earned it, take pride in it. It's ours to control and ours to use however we want. We get to dictate what we do with it. But there's a subtle danger in this, which Paul sternly reminds us. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. See, Paul's focus remains on those whose desire is of wealth and possessions, that we brought nothing into this world, and we take nothing out of it. Human existence is exactly this. We arrived empty-handed, and we will leave empty-handed. What we own, material possessions, money, our wealth, our advantage, these won't pass through the veil. And I think this can be hard to hear as middle-class Australians because when we're fed that our possessions, our money, our wealth, our provisions are something that is ours and ours alone, we attach ourselves to it, bind ourselves to these things. This is my house. I built it. I earned it. This is my bank account. All these endless overtime hours that were spent by me that put the dollars in there. We claim ownership to it. And without even realizing sometimes, we lift money, our resources, our materials to a status higher than they ought to be. We become proud because we have it and it's ours. Or we become crushed, devastated when we lose it because it's ours. And notice that the more we believe something is truly ours, the more we take pride in our ability to control it. But the reality is, none of it is actually ours. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. Everything that is ours is in fact the Lord's. It is His to own, His to give, His to keep, His to take away. We sing that song, that line from the song, He gives and takes away. Even in the wealth or possessions that we claim ownership to, we know just as well that in one foul swoop, it could just easily be taken away from us because it's not ours. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. So while our culture feeds us this enticing image of ownership, I think for Christians, we need to change it to stewardship. I think all the way back again to creation where Adam and Eve were directed by God, their creator, to take care of the garden. And all within it, plants, creatures, Adam and Eve were caretakers, stewards, tasked to care for the created order. God entrusted them, this stewards they were, yet it was clear that they were not the owners. It's God who has the ultimate ownership 
of everything. He is the creator who entrusted management to Adam and Eve to be exercised according to the Lord's purposes. Pastor R.C. Sproul and author R.C. Sproul says, stewardship, stewardship is rooted in the creation of mankind. This is our relationship. God is the owner. We are the managers. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. See, we have no claim to absolute ownership of anything, not our resources, our possessions, our money, our businesses, our abilities, our inheritance. It is God's to give and we are merely stewards of what he gives, whatever the wealth or provision we receive. And this has huge implications on us, for us. When we shift our understanding that our finances, the things that we own, our investments are not ours, but the Lord's, I think it gives us incentive to use it more faithfully and purposefully. Mark Zuckerberg has given $1.6 billion to help hospitals and schools. Bill Gates has donated $27 billion to all sorts of organisations that aid things like health, poverty and science. See, there are plenty of generous people in the world, celebrities, business moguls, maybe your workmate or your friends or yourself. That's a wonderful thing to see. I believe God can and does use people who may not believe in him to bring about his will in redeeming the world. We see that all around us. But to the Christian to the one who rests in the truth that all that we have is not in fact ours, but the Lord's, it actually gives our wealth, our possessions, our provisions a purpose. God has entrusted us with these things, often good things, that we may exercise them according to his purposes, used in generosity, used in uh, intentionality, used for good of others, used for uh, advancing his saving, sanctifying, healing purposes uh, in the world, used to bring glory to God. See, Paul talking about the rich would later in the chapter say this in 1 Timothy 6, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. See, guys, no matter our financial situation or season, when we shift our hearts and minds from an owner mindset to a steward mindset, the things we have and the lifestyle we live no longer become about personal embellishment or personal loss. But what God has given us becomes a means to bring about his redeeming purposes. So that new house you finally own, invite your neighbours over hear their life stories so that you can share your gospel story. That surplus savings account that you've gradually built up over time, share it with that person, that team, organisation who are on mission to bring both physical and spiritual food to many. That new car you recently saved up for, use it to bring that newcomer to your gospel community who's unable to drive. See, our wealth, our possessions, our provisions, these are all gifts given to us by a giving God. Realistically speaking, God has blessed us into affluent lives here in Melbourne. And while the temptation is for us to live these affluent lives for ourselves, Paul reminds us of our place in it all. He shifts our temporary perspective of ownership to an, uh, to an eternal perspective of stewardship. And I think when we see our wealth and belongings in such a way, it helps us enjoy God in when we have more, that there is purpose 
in what we have, that we can practically be a part of God's redeeming work using what he's entrusted us with. You know, I'm so encouraged by the people in our church who are so generous with their things and what God has given them. Just this week, my family was invited over to a couple's house here at Melbourne West who had recently built their home very recently and told me that all along, that building this place, all along as they built it, what they had in their mindset from day one was that building this house, how could they serve their church, serve our church with this home? And they're looking to be GC leaders in the near future, actually. So how awesome is that to hear? How encouraging is that to hear? An eternal perspective of stewardship. Now, hearing this all, there's a challenging question that arises, though. Even though we do live in a wealthy country and do have a lot, are we supposed to have less? That can be hard to hear, especially when we're in seasons where we're struggling financially. And it's a good question to, to have. And I think Paul helps us think this through. Verse 8, he says, But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. See, James Barnett of Florida, who grew up as a Christian, uh, one day after a turning point on a mission trip uh, in a particular city, like a a dump area basically where he was, decided to give up his six-figure salary job and leave his wealthy lifestyle and became homeless, living on the streets of Atlanta, Georgia, in order to love his homeless neighbours and talk to them about Jesus. Like you've probably heard a few stories similar to this before, you know, inspiring ones of people giving away pretty much everything for the sake of the gospel. And there are, there are even stories of this in the Bible. These are wonderful stories, a huge encouragement, an example of great faithfulness from such people. And yet what I often find myself doing is that after hearing this and reflecting, I start to ponder whether my living, my way of living is not so faithful. Because, you know, I live that middle-class Australian lifestyle, you know, air-conditioned house, a comfy bed and bed sheets, a few trips abroad every now and then, you know, three square meals a day, sometimes seven. You know, the, the average middle-class lifestyle. And I start to ponder whether this life, in a sense, is, is acceptable to God. See, while not rich, rich, yet still rich compared to the majority, a life that is, to be honest, abundant, whether this life is not faithful as compared to a person like James Barnett. And then I start to think even further, like what if I lost these things, you know, these comforts of mine? What if instead of giving it up like James, like James Barnett, I actually lose it by ways out of my control? So I'm left with a question, should I be okay with my current lifestyle as a follower of Christ? Or should I be disregarding all of what God has entrusted me with? my wealth and possessions to live in near poverty for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom? Or even more, should I want these things to be taken away so that I can live for the sake of the gospel? And I think in verse 8, Paul helps us navigate through this question as he paints for us a practical picture of what Christian contentment looks like. The thrust of Paul's argument in this whole passage is to not love wealth. So in verse 8, when Paul says that we can be satisfied in having food and cover, he's telling us to learn to be content with the necessities, to be content with little, that God provides for us enough, essentially a call to live simply. See, one writer writes, Paul is not establishing the maximum necessary for contentment, but the minimum. 
And I think why we have trouble imagining being like uh, this James Barnett and giving it all up to live in poverty or losing a lot of things uh, outside of our control is because we actually enjoy having a lot. And I think that's a natural response to have because I think our God is a God who wants us to have good things. And many times he does give us good things. I think back again to creation where God, God's plan for humanity was to enjoy in abundance the beauty, the fruitfulness of creation. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden were in a rich, fertile place, a place meant for humans to flourish, to prosper and live in abundance in every sense. As it says in uh, Genesis 1 verse 28, that God blessed them in this way. This was the relationship between God and humanity, a very tangible, real means of blessing from a known and loving creator to them. See, God doesn't endorse extreme poverty. If anything, poverty is a result of the fall and sin, fall through sin. But rather, I think Christian contentment means we should be content with the simple necessities which God gives us as we seek him above all things. And why I say that? It's because in Matthew 6, Jesus reminds people who were even anxious about the necessities of life. Jesus, like the necessities such as food, water and shelter, Jesus responds to them with this. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them, need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and these things will be added to you. Here Jesus calls for a deep-lying trust in him, no matter our circumstances. He calls for a trust in the Lord. He gives you what you need, which can be hard for us to fathom, especially in times where we're really feeling the pinch. But God calls us to trust in him and draw to him, seeking first him above all things seeing and reading of how he cares for his people in his good word, praying to God that he will sustain you with what you need, trusting in his spirit to guide you through whatever financial situation you may be in and to live faithfully. It can be hard to do. That's the reality. It can be so hard to do when going through financial hardship. But that's where that Christ-sufficient contentment comes in. It's in these hardships that help reveal to us where our treasure lies. That as Pastor John Piper asks, whether in prosperity or need, is Jesus enough? Sometimes it may even take losing things, even for some losing everything on this earth to truly come to believe that Jesus is the greatest treasure with every ounce of your being. You know, I remember reading a story about a gentleman named Gerald who as a family man formed a heavy gambling addiction, leading him to throw away his life savings of what he calculated around $4 million, not coming home for three months straight because he stayed at the casino. His kids had to drop out of college and lose their education because of his gambling addiction. They lo- he lost all their money. He lost everything in utter ruin with his heart completely em- feeling completely empty and without meaning. He re- reconnected with an old friend who was now a Christian, And that friend invited him to church. There Gerald gave his life to Christ, leading to a life completely transformed by the gospel. No more gambling. His whole family came to church eventually and they became baptized and he was forgiven by his family. But even better, he was forgiven in Christ. He traded gambling with a newfound treasure and that treasure was Jesus. 
Now, on the other hand, what if we actually don't lose anything or go through much struggle for most of our lives in a financial sense? Should our lives then be led by scarcity rather than abundance? See, while the James Barnett's of life was one who was uh, showed great faithfulness, I don't think God's expectation of his people is one where every believer is purposely meant to give it all up and live in near poverty. I think if this was God's demand, then it would seem only the extremely impoverished would have any chance of the, the future glory promised by God. But looking through the Bible, we'll actually see many examples of people who were indeed wealthy, yet God would use them in advancing his kingdom. I think of Joseph of Arimathea, who took Jesus' body and laid it in the tomb, described as both a rich man and a disciple of Jesus. Joanna, the wife of Herod's household manager, wealthy in her own right, provided for Jesus and the disciples out of her means. Lydia, from the book of Acts a merchant regarded in the wealthier categories of society, uses her house as a means of hospitality for the Apostle Paul, Silas, and Timothy. These were all individuals who were wealthy and were nonetheless used as God's instruments doing a special work through their wealth for righteous causes in the Lord. But in the same vein, God's expectation isn't for every believer to then be wealthy, that we should strive for wealth, since God can use the rich to bring about his purposes. This is an unfortunate false gospel that is prominent in today's age, you know, one that is falsely promising health, wealth, and prosperity in standing with one's faith. That's essentially what they were doing back then, the false teachers. But what I do think is God's expectation then is that no matter our living or financial situation, that we seek first his kingdom and righteousness, and trust in the Lord's provision for us. Matthew was a tax collector who were known for cheating people in amassing huge wealth for themselves. Yet he was called by Jesus to be his disciple. And when called, Matthew used his abundance of wealth to throw a massive banquet for tax collectors, other tax collectors to come and eat with Jesus. Matthew would then give it all up because he had found his true treasure, following Jesus, trusting Jesus to provide for him as he followed him everywhere. You might be called to give it all up, wealth, your wealth, possessions, to go. You might lose it out of your control, but more likely you may also not. What's important is that either way, we can be content in what the Lord gives and what he takes away, promising not luxuries, only necessities, and we should be content with his provisions, even if they're humble, for we already have enough in Jesus. See, understanding this, I think there's something specifically for us that we have to be very mindful of here. There's a greater temptation for us as people who already have a lot. See, as we live in, uh, to be honest, a, a, a comfortable life, a rich life as we look all around us, our idea of enough, of enough, enough can easily get muddy because the more you have, the more you want. While God can and does use wealthy people too to go about bringing his purposes, I think Paul's call to the simple life in contentment should especially be on our hearts and ought to be intentionally something that we strive for daily because as Jeremiah 17 says, that our hearts are more deceitful above all else. 
See, as affluent Melburnians who are honestly living in abundance, even as Christians, how easy is it for our hearts to crave for more? We have to see that Paul goes hard. Paul goes so hard about Christian contentment because he knows just how dangerous the desire of money really is, that there is a danger in more. Look what he says in verse 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with these pangs. This is a stern and, and weighty warning from Paul. The problem with the false teachers of the time was that they had a deep love of money to the point that they pursued godliness as a means of financial gain. Yet to us as readers, the warning is just the same, that there is a danger in the love of wealth. Paul first uses the word temptation, that the the greedy fall into temptation, describing it as alluring into sin. The love of wealth knows how to cause people to look in directions that they may normally have not looked, to lure people to cheat, to deceive, to take advantage, to exploit. Paul then uses the word snare or trap, painting for us an animal that is caught and controlled. In the same way, the money, the materials, it traps people, controls them. As author William MacDonald said, such a man also falls into a snare or a trap. The desire becomes so strong that he cannot deliver himself from it. Perhaps he promises himself that when he reaches a certain figure in the bank account, he will stop. Paul continues, people who love money fall into senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I used the example of Gerald before, who gambled all his money away, his life, that affected his family, all because of a love of money. But Paul's wording here isn't just of moral destruction, but spiritual devastation that, as verse 10 says, leads to apostasy. It's a disease that can gradually rot a believer to wander from the faith. Paul's warning against the love of money, wealth, and materials is firm, and it's something that we need to hear today. The peril in having more is that we will be daily tempted to give in to this love. It's not the money or wealth itself that is the issue. These are just things, coins, money, materials that we hold. But as verse 10 points out, it's our love of these things. And it's devastating. The love of money is the root of all evil, it says. I remember an illustration on just how impactful the love of money is by describing how it affects each of the Ten Commandments. It can be put into each of the Ten Commandments. I'll give you an example. Commandment two, you shall not make yourself for an idol. We know that greed is an idol for so much of the world because of money. Commandment four, keep the Sabbath day holy. Many are too busy pursuing riches to set aside one week of the day to come worship the Lord. Commandment six, you shall not murder. Murder. How many murders have we seen or read about or watched that had to do with money across the world? Church, the danger of the love of money is real. Paul's warning is strong. So how do we, as people living in abundance, stand firm in this, stand firm against this? I think by having a, a daily posture of thanksgiving. When we understand that everything that is ours is actually God's and given to us, we should be nothing but thankful to the God who gives. Thing is, we so often have thankful hearts when we're living comfortably. 
Isn't it easier to be thankful when we're living in a seasons of more? But what about those hard times? Those times where we feel like we don't have much, perhaps the seasons that we're in now. Be encouraged by these words in James. Every good gift and every perfect, perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I think that when we grasp that everything we receive, whether it be the roof over our heads or the food in our fridge, or even to some of the stuff that we take for granted, like the, breath, like the breath that we breathe every day. If we see all thing, these things as truly a gift from God, then thanksgiving to God becomes an instinct, leading us to be content no matter the circumstance. If we can come to God in thanksgiving in seasons of less, we won't forget him in seasons of more. Christian contentment must go hand in hand with thanksgiving. Whether God chooses to give us plenty or only meet our necessities, we should be content and thankful either way. And while this may be difficult for us in some seasons, I think Paul helps us with an encouragement in verse 11 and 12 of our passage where he says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I think if I were to best sum up these things that Paul calls us to do in those last two verses, is to say, is to love God above all things. And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. The love of money Wealth, possessions, ownership, entitlement stand no chance when our deepest and truest love is for the Lord our God. He is our giver. He is our provider. He is our treasure. He is sufficient. He is enough. In seasons of struggles or seasons of plenty, the best remedy against the lure of the world to love money, materialism more, is to love something more than that. And that is to love Jesus the most. When finances, while finances fade, Jesus does not. Know and take heart that you can lean on him in times like this, that he sees your current and future needs and he is faithful to provide. As it says in Philippians 4 verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a giving God who generously blesses us with abundance as we look all around us. We thank you that you've gifted us the greatest thing in your son, Jesus, uh, that in him, that hole in our hearts is filled, that we may be tempted to seek fulfillment in so many other things. Yet as you have told us, only you can fulfill our deepest soul's desire. Help us, Lord, as we navigate living in this wealth-obsessed world when we have more, help us to be humble, remembering that every gift is from you, reminding ourselves that we are stewards of what you give, that we may serve them for your purposes and your glory. Help us, Lord, when we're in times of struggle, when we're in times of hardship, as many of us are feeling the financial hardships of today. Help us to have a deep faith and trust in you, to be content, to continue to be thankful and to hold you up as our greatest treasure, knowing that you are indeed enough. 
For you are a treasure that does not fade, but a treasure that continues into eternity. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your gifts. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.